something that was very common in the circles that I ran in, which was this sense that God is really moving there. God's really involved with that. We used to ask each other, so, what, so what's God doing? And if there was a movement, if there was a revival, if there was a favorite teaching, if a church was really successful, well then God was doing that, quote, doing that. And that's what we all tried to imitate. And it's so sad. And I was on a call the other day with several ministers where this subject was brought up. And this brother from England spoke up and he said, you know, God is doing multiple things at once. <laughs> God is a multitasker, Pam. Man, so good. God is doing what you're doing right now. God is doing this with the Genesis gathering. And there's a sanctuary expression of it, sanctuary church building expression of it, and there's a home expression of it or wherever you're watching. In fact, Statistically, the analytics show that the majority of people that watch our broadcast and participate do so from their phone. The analytics also show, interestingly, the majority of you are iPhone owners. <laughs> now, we don't have names, all right? We don't see addresses, can't get that detailed. But we can see areas of the city, areas of the country. We have a number of people that watch from out of country as well. And um, I, I, I forgot my laptop, it's sitting back there. So, would, thank you, Matt, would you please, it's on that chair. Um, I wanna talk to you about your view of God this morning. Is that okay? Let me remind you as my laptop is coming up that um, you can correspond with us, ask us questions, dialogue with us, or submit prayer requests in one of two ways. Type it into the chat or send that as a text, 720-878-88, excuse me, 3323. All right, so let me get into our broadcast here and bring it up. And I wanna be able to monitor, moderate the chat or at least see that you're typing something. Okay, super, super. All right. You know, this journey of faith is really about becoming healthy in our view of God. And our genesis, our beginning in Him. That's what the journey of faith is about. Becoming healthy in our view of God. John chapter 10, verse 10 says this. A thief has only one thing in mind. He wants to steal, slaughter, and destroy. Now that word slaughter there has to do with sacrificing sacrificing animals. Isn't that interesting? Part of a thief system is to keep you bound in performance religion. But I have come, Jesus said, to give you everything in abundance, more than you expect, life in its fullness until you overflow. You see, your view of God is your view of you. Your view of God is your view of you. Your mental, physical, and spiritual health are directly tied to how you perceive God. Now, this, 
there are two common misconceptions regarding God. One is entitlement, the entitlement mentality, where he's going to give you everything you want. When I was much younger as a Christian, what I was taught and the things that I was reading were about taking your authority, okay? The authority of the believer, that you have title and that you have right, making it all about a, a sort of a legal contract. I heard one author and minister one time say it this way. He said, you have a blank check with God. Now, there's... Of course, some truth in those things, some truth in believing God's promises and taking him at his word and that he's going to fulfill his promises on your behalf. But this entitlement mentality, which says he's going to give you whatever you can believe him for, whatever you want, you just believe him for it, you put the coin in, pull the lever, and God's going to give it back to you because you did something the right way. The second mentality that's a complete misconception of God is the punishment mentality, that God watches your behavior, measures you against his holiness, and that the rewards and punishments come to you accordingly. Now, this includes the punishment of sin, or caveat of that. If, if you're a Christian, you better stay up on your confession. Then he'll forgive your sin and mitigate it, okay, the best that he can. But if you're not a Christian, sorry. God punishes sin. It's a mentality. It even goes as far as this, that God will do whatever is necessary to get your attention. So sickness and floods and loss and death of loved ones just to make sure you know he's in charge there's also three common and very broad views of God one is that he's a sacred God or transcendent God this view sees God as actually existing but however he isn't significantly involved in our daily life or the concerns of humanity then there's the punitive God. God is angered and he's offended by sin. He maintains a record of your right and your wrong and he will punish the wrong. He's looking to punish. There's little hope of honestly meeting his demands or pleasing him. This belief in a punitive God will actually foster anxiety irrational suspicions, emotional instability, and unhealthy obsessions. So it's absolutely, your view of God is tied to your mental health. Your view of God is tied to your emotional health. And then there's the benevolent view. The one that we here at Genesis Gathering are sharing and talking about that we share with you on the live stream. It's the belief that God is good. He is closely invested in humanity and passionately pursues relationship with us personally. His will and intentions are abundant life now. Now, it's not put the coin in, pull the handle, and God's got to do it. It's not that. It's not entitlement. But it's surrender. It's 
what a good, good father. And thank you for all the rich blessings. And sometimes the things that he blesses me with aren't the thing that I asked for just that way, but it turns out to be even greater. We're here co-locating at St. John's, not according to our authority and claiming it and we asked for it and those kind of things. In fact, it's the total opposite of that. We went through great loss where we thought, we must be out, either out of the will of God or Satan came in and Satan destroyed and took and all of those kind of things, only to realize that where we are now is actually the wonderful hand of God having united us, moved in our lives, blessed us with so many riches, blessed us with new relationships. It's just been so, so good. But you have to get on the other side of some of those difficulties to realize that God is moving now. God is blessing you now. God is involved in your now. See, now faith is. Whenever faith isn't now, then you're separating God into containers. The sacred and the, what I say earlier? Secular. Don't do that with God. He's in the now. He's in what you're enjoying now, how you're praying now, where you're driving now. The song you're singing now, God is there. God is in that thing. God is good. God is good. Say it. God is good. God is not punitive. God is not a, just a sacred, transcendent God who's not involved. God is good. God is now. God is involved in your life. Let me give you three Bible verses, three scriptures that tell us about God and his goodness. First of all, that God draws us to himself, to relationship with himself, his son Jesus, and Holy Spirit. We find this in Romans chapter 8, verse 35. I'm reading this from the Passion Translation. Who could ever divorce us from the endless love of God's anointed one? Absolutely no one, for nothing in the universe has the power to diminish his love toward us. Troubles, pressures, and problems are unable to come between us and heaven's love. What about persecutions, deprivations, dangers, and death threats? No, for they are all impotent to hinder his omnipotent love. What a great verse. God draws us into love with him. Here's Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 6. And when he draws you to himself, it proves that you are his delightful child. Wow, what a view of God. You are his delightful child. Secondly, God doesn't want you to be hurt. Not now. And not through eternity. God doesn't want you hurt. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9. This means that, contrary to man's perspective, the Lord is not late with his promise to return, as some measure lateness, but rather his delay simply reveals his loving patience toward you because he does not want any to perish, but all to come to repentance. And that doesn't mean sorrow and shame. That means 
a change of mind, a change of attitude, which is what we're talking about here. And the third thing that is something that we can read in Scripture about how much God loves us and draws us to himself, how good God is, is that you are already like God. So stop trying so hard. You're already like him. He's made you perfect. You say, well, I know I don't act perfect. Join the club. The truth is, I can't get any more like God. You can't get any more like God. Now, as I talk with people, and as I've talked with people through the years in over 40 years of pastoral ministry, and as I talk to people now in my daily life, almost daily, I will hear something like this. I want to grow in the Lord. I want to get closer to God or closer. If I were to ask you right now, if I were to walk around the room or visit with each of you out in the live stream and say, so, so what kind of things have you been praying about? What, what's on your heart? What's your number one desire to the Lord? I bet you would say some of these things. I want to be closer to Jesus. I want to grow in God. I'm trying, one woman told me recently, I'm trying to believe him more. I pray every day. Another person said this, I'm doing better. I'm doing better so I know God's going to hear my prayer. Now, all of those things, praying for God to bless you, praying to be closer, praying to do better, Praying that you'll, all of that is performance-based sacrificing, which Jesus said is part of an evil system. It will rob you of joy. It's part of the thief system. It will rob you of joy. It will rob you of confidence. It will rob you of joy in your skill. It will rob you of the things that you desire to be and do and accomplish. And all of those behaviors that I've just mentioned and those attitudes are exactly opposite of what Jesus taught us and what the Bible authors tell us. Listen to this. This is Ephesians, the second chapter of that book the fifth verse. This is how grace rescued us. While we were yet in the state of deadness and indifference in our deviations, we were co-quickened together with Christ. We had nothing to do with it. Underline. Highlight. <laughs> we had nothing to do with it. Grace freed us once and for all from the lies that we believed about ourselves under the performance-driven system and now defines our, our, authentic, our authentic identity. You see, our genesis is in him. You are born again. Being born again is not an event somewhere down the road once you mature enough to maybe go to church, listen to a few sermons and quote, pray the prayer, go forward in the service, cry, be sorry for your sins, repent, 
get saved, and then you become born again. No, our genesis starts in him. We are, this conversation was asked and brought to Jesus one night when a religious ruler approached him. He was of the Pharisees. I want to read it to you here, okay? It's found in the Gospel of John in the New Testament, chapter 3. I'll start reading in verse 1. And I'm reading from the Mirror Translation. Now, amongst them, there was a man who was a prominent leader among the Jews, a Pharisee named Nicodemus. He came to see Jesus under the cover of night and said to him, Rabbi, it is clear for all of us to see that you come from God as a teacher. The signs you perform are proof that God is with you. No one is able to do these signs that you do if they are not in union with God. Watch, here's Jesus' response to him, all right? It's late at night. He's come in secret because he doesn't want to be seen. He'll be ridiculed. He'll be cast out probably. Uh, uh, of He'll lose his job. Uh, he'll lose his ministry. Uh, I mean, it was a risky thing to dialogue with Jesus in this fashion. But he had a heart for Jesus he, he, was, he was becoming in love with Jesus' teaching. And so he comes to him at night and says, Oh, we, we know you must be from God or else you wouldn't be able to do these miracles. You wouldn't have this power. Watch, here's what Jesus says. It's interesting because he, he doesn't talk about salvation. He doesn't talk about praying the prayer. He doesn't talk about being a better person. He doesn't talk about getting closer to God. He doesn't talk about him needing to repent of his sin. Here's what he says, verse 3. Jesus answered him emphatically, no one would even be able to recognize anything as coming from God's domain unless they are born from above to begin with. The very fact that this is possible to perceive, that I am in union with God as a human being, reveals mankind's genesis from above. So when we read in our standard translations, you must be born again, that word born again doesn't mean to be born a second time. It means to be born from above. So he's not talking about a second time. He's talking about a different birth, okay? Now he continues, and this word, by the way, born again or born from above is also used in James chapter 1 and verse 17 where he says all good things come from God who is above. Now here's verse 4. And because I'm going to be saying some things in between the verses, I'm going to ask that the verses not, don't lead them. Don't leave them up if I'm not actually referring because, because there's some things I want to say I don't want people reading ahead of me. All right, verse 4. Nicodemus did not understand this answer at all, and he said to him, how can a person be born if they are already grown up? See, he's thinking born a second time. Surely one cannot re-enter your mother's womb and be born a second time. See, his second time was not the same as Jesus's from above. Are you with me? His second time was not the same as Jesus's from above. It isn't about a second birth. Jesus was speaking about a different birth. You've got to be born from above, he said. Now, let me ask you something. 
Did you begin in your mother's womb? Is that where life began? Think about it now carefully before you answer. I'm not trying to trick you. Did you begin in your mother's womb? No. Jeff's shaking his head. He's holding up my outline back there saying, I'm reading. I, I've got your answer. <laughs> you didn't begin in your mother's womb. You began in God's heart, in God's womb. You're not your parents' idea. You're God's idea. Some of us, our parents didn't want us. Right? Some of us have had traumatic experiences in childhood and being raised by the family members that we were. That does not define you. Jesus continues, verse 5. Jesus answered, Nicodemus, you have to get this. Unless someone is born of water, meaning the womb of a woman, and of spirit, meaning from above, there would be no possible connection with the realm of God. Whatever originates out of the flesh is flesh, but what is sourced from spirit is spirit. You are a spirit, every one of you. You didn't begin in your mother's womb. You began in God's heart. You are spirit. You came from God to start with. The message translation says regarding this, quote, when you look at a baby, it's just that. A body you can look at and touch. But the person who takes shape within is formed by something you can't see and touch, which is the spirit. Isn't that beautiful? Verse 7. Don't be surprised when I say to you, and that say to you means humanity, the whole world. Don't be surprised when I say to humanity, you couldn't get here in the flesh unless you had started from above. You see, our genesis is in God. And it's beyond your natural conception. This isn't about our blood lineage or whether we were wanted or unwanted as a child. This is about our God-begottenness. We are his dream come true. Look at, look at somebody and say, I am God's dream come true. Go ahead, say it to him. I am God's dream come true. Yes, you are, dear. You are God's dream come true. I know it. We're not the invention of our parents. You're the greatest idea God has ever had. Now, verse 16. Many of us could quote it. For God so, help me, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whomsoever believeth in him should not perish but will have everlasting life. Right? Standard King James. I want to read it to you now with this light of what it means to be born again from the mirror translation. Verse 16. The entire cosmos, in other words, all of humanity and creation, is the object of God's affection. And he is not about to abandon his creation. The gift of his son is for mankind to realize their origin in him who mirrors their authentic birth. You see, when Jesus came, he was just mirroring our birth. 
When he was born as a baby, he was mirroring our birth, but he was the son of God, so we could touch and hold, you know, the, the, the Mother Mary and Joseph and, 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 and the three tribesmen and, the, and <laughs> everybody else that was there that night. They weren't called tribesmen. You understand I'm trying to be humorous. Oh, the Magi and the shepherds and all. They could touch his body, but the body itself wasn't God. It was his spirit. So Jesus actually mirrors our authentic birth, begotten not of the flesh but of the Father. In this persuasion, the life of the ages echoes within the individual and announces that the days of regret and sense of lostness are over. Your view of you is immediately flipped, made healthy, exciting, rich, powerful, you're going somewhere, you are happening, you are now, God loves you incredibly, he's passionate about you now because you are his child. You were born from above. You're not waiting for it. It's not something yet to happen. It is now. And this is the conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus. Nicodemus, don't you understand this? Look, you're a religious teacher. You've got to get this, Jesus told me. And he didn't talk about salvation. He didn't talk about forgiveness. He didn't talk about repenting of his sin. He didn't tell him about how to get to heaven. He, what an opportunity to influence one of Israel's great leaders who could then go from there and teach others. Jesus didn't talk about any of that. He talked about his genesis in God. Hmm. You see, how you view God is how you view you. If you understand Jesus' birth, who is called what? Paul called him the firstborn among many. He's also called my elder brother. Well, how is that? How is it possible? Unless I have his DNA. We have a few questions. And Jeff, I don't remember if I... I think I might have made a slide for these, and if not, I'll just put them out there and ask them. <laughs> yeah, thank you very much. So I want you to pick one of these. You in the live stream, you can type it in into the chat. Those of you here, you know, let us know. Uh, I, for the sake of today, since we're a little shy on media people to run around, uh, I can just repeat your your uh, comment or your question so that our audience can can hear it. And then let's dialogue now. Let's throw this open. Let's talk about it. So here's a couple of starter questions. And I want to know what you're thinking about right now, okay? I want to know if you've thought about any of these kind of things. What is he like? What is God like to you? What does he care about? Ever thought about that? What does God care about? How does he relate to you? How would you characterize your view of God? How do you think your view of God affects your mental health? 
All right, let's throw this thing open here. We're looking in the chat for any response. How about you out there? What, what did your mind do while I was talking? What kind of things came up in your thoughts? Pam says, he's a loving God. I wish I had been taught this. I wish I had been taught that. When I was young and growing up as a teenager and young adult. To expand on that, it's, um, it's unconditional love. To expand so on that. It's not conditional upon this, that, or the other. It's not just lovingly, unconditionally. It's unconditional love as well. So we can, Jeff, if you would, just so we get a little, go ahead and turn this mic on. We'll just have it sitting here. It's unconditional love. Yeah, just go ahead. And that helps your mental... It does help my mental health. Yeah, because I'm taking that care, like bubbles bubbling up, and then pop, pop, popping to God, you know, instead of just keeping it, you know, in myself <laughs> and worrying about it. That's an interesting yeah, visual. Yeah, <laughs> bubbles rising. Pop. Hey, God. Pop. Thank you for loving me. Pop. <laughs> yeah, help me do this one. I'm tired, Lord. Keep me awake on the highway. <laughs> so, I want to ask you all something. Do you think, maybe, that because there's an absence of this knowledge of God and how much he loves us, that it contributes to some of the violence and acting out, the suicide, people taking taking rifles and doing mass killings. I mean, what is, what is going on there? I mean, back in the day, we used to just call that demon activity. That's a demon. And I have no doubt that that personification of evil is manifesting in some way there. I, I have no doubt, but boy, the, the whole thing with mental health and hate and violence and the stuff that's going on, it seems to explode it in our society. Is it possible that the Western, largely Christian, evangelical view of God, which is not like this, and it's very performance, very sacrificial, bloodletting, all of that, contributes 
Ralph says, God for me has three faces. The IT is incomprehensible. The it, I guess, is incomprehensibly bigger than my understanding. The you is personable and a loving counterpart. And the I is me as the I am. So the it right, is one face. The it is incomprehensibly bigger. Apparently, maybe, maybe he'll add to that. So that's the God, our Father, the Trinity, <clears throat> bigger than my understanding. The you is personable and a loving counterpart. And the I is me as the I am. He says, this helps my mental health. I do not have to understand everything. That's the it. I can talk and commune with him at any time. That's the you. And I can accept me as I am, part of the Christ. He is the head. We are the body. Isn't that good? with my daughter yesterday and we were talking about relationships and rejection and how difficult that is and um, one of the things that I told her was that what helps me in those moments is knowing who I am and accepting who I am knowing that I am 100% accepted and loved by God yeah. and that, that kind of can go to anything because you have if you fail at your job you know, you realize, okay, I may get fired. I may, you know, bad things may happen. I may have a bad review. I may not get a pay raise. But at the end of the day, the most important thing is that you learn and you grow through it. And you have that, that foundation of, I am already loved. I am already accepted. God knows who I am. And he's not surprised that I failed at something, right? Like he knows exactly what's going on in my life. And when you have that anchor, everything else, speaking of mental health, everything else comes into perspective as secondary, everything not as else. important. Yes. Very good. One person just before, uh, one person described that as a, the, the spokes in a wheel. That Jesus is our hub, and then every spoke comes off of that, but it all originates in him. 
So everything in my life originates in him. But it has its own, you know, each one has its own uniqueness. And um, Jeff um, Shelfstead said, um, I, think he, I think this is in reference to the, there are some people who don't, so, who don't rely on God, who don't grasp God, whatever. Those are the people who have lost all hope and believe God will never forgive them. Mm. Mm. Those are kind of maybe even two different topics, lost all hope, and then those people who feel like God will never forgive There them. are people that feel or that way. That yeah. They go together, they could be separate. Mm -hmm. There are people that feel God can't forgive them. Uh, it's a hopelessness. And therefore turn to other things. And turn to other things. To fill that empty void. Yeah. You know, we've heard for years about there's this God-shaped God void, void on the inside of us. You know, we're, we're trying to fill, and, and that's just an illustration. It's not an entirely accurate illustration, actually, because we do believe God is in every person. But as far as there being a void in our being somehow, and our understanding, and our feeling loved, you know, but looking to be filled. What are we looking for? So we, if you can't fill it with that recognition of God's love, you try to fill it with something. It could be entertainment, could be shopping, spending money, getting something new. Could be, yeah. yeah. Could be things that seem less harmless and some things that are we recognize as being harmful. Less harmless, less seem less, less harmful. <laughs> How would you characterize your view of God? Anybody want to comment about that, tackle that? Oh. <laughs> um, I used to view God as a, kind of like a, a judge, angry, um, had to follow the law. Even if he loved you, he had to punish you. He had to um, exact justice on your life and your actions. And... What I've come to believe now is that God is incredibly patient. He mm. is not worried about time. He has eternity, and he is um, continuously working in each person. That's awesome. I was in a group of leaders not too long ago, but last year, <clears throat> where somebody expressed... I'm not so sure we're not going to have a second chance. <laughs> now that was in relationship to the subject of hell. They accepted that there's, quote, a hell, some sort of something afterwards, a, a suffering maybe, that might be purging, cleansing, but not eternal conscious torment. And they said, I'm not so sure that the book of Revelation and some of the other passages don't talk about a second opportunity. All that just to say, God is patient. Did, we read it, you know, here. It was in our, in our scriptures, so let me pull it back out because now... Now some people just turned me off because I said I don't believe in eternal conscious torment and maybe there's going to be a second chance like incarnation and so forth. 
that's not actually what I said, but anyway. Um, <laughs> so, um, let me find the scripture. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9. This means that contrary to man's perspective, the Lord's not late with his promise to return as some measure lateness. See, our measure can be really screwed up. In fact, back then, when, when they were writing, quote, the scriptures, right, it wasn't, you know, they didn't have a Bible. They were still just, you know, writing letters and things that got later con collected. So that was hundreds of years later that it was put into, quote, a Bible. They didn't have a Bible like we have. So they were writing letters. And, and so back then, when this was being written, they believed the Lord's return was imminent imminent they believed he was coming soon in their lifetime so here it's been 2,000 years <laughs> this means that contrary to man's perspective the Lord is not late with his promise to return as some measure of lateness but rather his delay simply reveals his long his loving patience toward you because he does not want any to perish but all to come to repentance so, I mean, if God can stretch it out 2,000 years because he's just not wanting anybody to go through suffering, he wants all to be saved, well, maybe there's, maybe there's a second chance afterwards. I don't know. I just, you know, this is discussion time. We bring these things up. We don't bring them up as hard, fast theology. This is discussion group, all right? So if you hate me now, praise the Lord. We're family. <laughs> <laughs> 